0: Section 3 of the History of England from the Accession of James the 2nd, Volume 3, Chapter 14. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. The History of England from the Accession of James the 2nd, Volume 3, Chapter 14, by Thomas Babington Macaulay, Section 3. The declaration had settled the crown, first on William and Mary jointly, then on the survivor of the two, then on Mary's posterity, then on Anne and her posterity, and, lastly, on the posterity of William by any other wife than Mary. The bill had been drawn in exact conformity with the declaration. Who was to succeed if Mary, Anne, and William should all die without posterity was left in uncertainty. Yet the event for which no provision was made for was far from improbable. Indeed, it really came to pass. William never had a child. Anne had repeatedly been a mother, but had no child living. It would not be very strange if, in a few months, disease, war, or treason should remove all those who stood in the entail. In what state would the country then be left? To whom would allegiance be due? The bill, indeed, contained a clause which excluded papists from the throne. But would such a clause supply the place of a clause designating the successor by name, What if the next heir should be a prince of the house of Savoy, not three months old? It would be absurd to call such an infant a papist. Was he then to be proclaimed king? Or was the crown to be in abeyance till he should come to an age at which he might be capable of choosing a religion? Might not the most honest and most intelligent men be in doubt whether they ought to regard him as their sovereign? And to whom could they look for the solution of this doubt? Parliament would be none, for the Parliament would expire with the prince who had convoked it there would be a mere anarchy, anarchy which might end in the destruction of the monarchy, or in the destruction of public liberty. For these weighty reasons, Barnet, at William's suggestion, proposed it in the House of Lords that the Crown should, failing heirs of His Majesty's body, be entailed on an undoubted Protestant, Sophia, Duchess of Brunswick, Lunenburg, granddaughter of James I, and daughter of Elizabeth, Queen of Bohemia. The Lords unanimously assented to this amendment, but the commons unanimously rejected it. The cause of the rejection, no contemporary writer has satisfactorily explained. One Whig historian talks of the machinations of the Republic, another of the machinations of the Jacobites. But it is quite certain that four-fifths of the representatives of the people were neither Jacobites nor Republicans, yet not a single voice was raised in the lower house in favor of the clause, which in the upper house had been carried by acclamation. THE MOST PROBABLE EXPLANATION SEEMS TO BE THAT THE GROSS INJUSTICE WHICH HAD BEEN COMMITTED IN THE CASE OF OATES HAD IRRITATED THE COMMONS TO SUCH A DEGREE THAT THEY WERE GLAD OF AN OPPORTUNITY TO quarrel WITH THE PEERS. A CONFERENCE WAS HELD. NEITHER ASSEMBLY WOULD GIVE WAY. WHILE THE DISPUTE WAS HOTTEST, AN EVENT TOOK PLACE WHICH, IT MIGHT HAVE BEEN THOUGHT, WOULD HAVE RESTORED HARMONY. ANNE GAVE BIRTH TO A SON. THE CHILD WAS BAPTIZED AT HAMPTON COURT WITH GREAT POMP AND WITH MANY SIGNS OF PUBLIC JOY william was one of the sponsors the other was the accomplished dorset whose roof had given shelter to the princess in her distress the king bestowed his own name on his godson and announced to the splendid circle assembled around the font that the little william was henceforth to be called duke of gloucester the birth of this child had greatly diminished the risk against which the lords had thought it necessary to guard they might therefore have retracted with good grace but their pride had been wounded by the severity with which their decision on Oates's writ of error had been censured in the painted chamber. They had been plainly told across the table that they were unjust judges, and the imputation was not the less irritating because they were conscious that it was deserved. They refused to make any concession, and the Bill of Rights was suffered to drop. But the most exciting question of this long and stormy session was, what punishment should be inflicted on those men who had, during the interval between the dissolution of the Oxford Parliament and the Revolution, been the advisers or the tools of Charles and James. It was happy for England that, at this crisis, a prince who belonged to neither of her factions, who loved neither, who hated neither, and who, for the accomplishment of a great design, wished to make use of both, was the moderator between them the two parties were in a position closely resembling that in which they had been twenty-eight years before the party indeed which had then been undermost was now uppermost but the analogy between the situation is one of the most perfect that can be found in history both the restoration and the revolution was accomplished by coalitions at the restoration those politicians who were peculiarly zealous for liberty assisted to re-establish monarchy At the Revolution, those politicians who were particularly zealous for monarchy assisted to vindicate liberty. The Cavalier would, at the former conjuncture, have been able to effect nothing without the help of Puritans who had fought for the Covenant. Nor would the Whig, at the latter conjuncture, have offered a successful resistance to arbitrary power, had he not been backed by men who had, a very short time before, condemned resistance to arbitrary power as a deadly sin. Conspicuous among those by whom, in 1660, the royal family was brought back, were Hoppis, who had, in the days of the tyranny of Charles I, held down the speaker in the chair by main force, while Blackrod knocked for admission in vain, Ingoldsby, whose name was subscribed to the memorable death-warrant, and Prynne, whose ears Laud had cut off, and who in return had borne the chief part in cutting off Laud's head. Among the seven who, in 1688, signed the invitation to William, were Compton, who had long enforced the duty of obeying Nero, Danby, who had been impeached for endeavouring to establish military despotism, and Lumley, whose bloodhounds had tracked Monmouth to that sad last hiding-place among the fern. Both in 1660 and in 1688, while the fate of the nation still hung in the balance, forgiveness was exchanged between the hostile factions. On both occasions the reconciliation, which had seemed to be cordial in the hour of danger, proved false and hollow in the hour of triumph. As soon as Charles the Second was at Whitehall, the cavalier forgot the good service recently done by the Presbyterians, and remembered only their old offences. As soon as William was king, too many of the Whigs began to demand vengeance for all that they had, in the days of the Rye House plot, suffered at the hands of the Tories. On both occasions the sovereign found it difficult to save the vanquished party from the fury of his triumphant supporters, and on both occasions those whom he had disappointed of their revenge murmured bitterly against the government which had been so weak and ungrateful as to protect its foes against its friends. So early as the 25th of March William called the attention of the commons to the expediency of quieting the public mind by an amnesty. He expressed his hope that a bill of general pardon and oblivion would be as speedily as possible presented for his sanction, and that no exceptions would be made, "'except such as were absolutely necessary "'for the vindication of public justice "'and for the safety of the State. "'The Commons unanimously agreed to thank him "'for this instance of his paternal kindness, "'but they suffered many weeks to pass "'without taking any step towards the accomplishment of his wish. "'When at length the subject was resumed, "'it was resumed in such a manner as plainly showed "'that the majority had no real intention "'of putting an end to the suspense "'which embittered the lives of all those Tories "'who were conscious that, in their zeal for prerogative, they had sometimes overstepped the exact line traced by law. Twelve categories were framed, some of which were so extensive as to include tens of thousands of delinquents, and the House resolved that, under every one of these categories, some exceptions should be made. Then came the examination into the cases of individuals. Numerous culprits and witnesses were summoned to the bar. The debates were long and sharp, and it soon became evident that the work was interminable. The summer glided away, the autumn was approaching, the session could not last much longer, and of the twelve distinct inquisitions which the commons had resolved to institute, only three had been brought to a close. It was necessary to let the bill drop for that year. Among the many offenders whose names were mentioned in the course of these inquiries was one who stood alone and unapproached in guilt and infamy, and whom Whigs and Tories were equally willing to leave to the extreme rigor of the law. On that terrible day which was succeeded by the Irish Night, the roar of a great city disappointed of its revenge had followed Jeffreys to the drawbridge of the tower. His imprisonment was not strictly legal, but he at first accepted with thanks and blessings the protection which those dark walls, made famous by so many crimes and sorrows, afforded him against the fury of the multitude. Soon, however, he became sensible that his life was still in imminent peril. For a time he flattered himself with the hope that a writ of habeas corpus could liberate him from his confinement, and that he should be able to steal away to some foreign country, and to hide himself, with part of his ill-gotten wealth, from the detestation of mankind. But till the government was settled, there was no court competent to grant a writ of habeas corpus, and as soon as the government had been settled, the habeas corpus act was suspended. Whether the legal guilt of murder could be brought home to Jeffreys may be doubted, but he was morally guilty of so many murders that, if there had been no other way of reaching his life, a retrospective act of attainer would have been clamorously demanded by the whole nation. A disposition to triumph over the fallen has never been one of the besetting sins of Englishmen, but the hatred of which Jeffreys was the object was without a parallel in our history, and partook but too largely of the savageness of his own nature. The people, where he was concerned, were as cruel as himself, and exulted in his misery as he had been accustomed to exult in the misery of convicts listening to the sentence of death, and of families clad in mourning. The rabble congregated before his deserted mansion in Duke Street, and read on the door, with shouts of laughter, the bills which announced the sale of his property. Even delicate women, who had tears for highwaymen and housebreakers, breathed nothing but vengeance against him. The lampoons on him which were hawked about the town were diminished by an atrocity rare even in those days, hanging would be too mild a death for him a grave under the gibbet too respectable a resting-place he ought to be whipped to death at the cart's tail he ought to be tortured like an indian he ought to be devoured alive the street poets portioned out all his joints with cannibal ferocity and computed how many pounds of steaks might be cut from his well-fatted carcass nay the rage of his enemies was such that in language seldom heard in england they proclaimed their wish that he might go to the place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, to the worm that never dies, to the fire that is never quenched. They exhorted him to hang himself in his garters, and to cut his throat with his razor. They put up horrible prayers that he might not be able to repent, that he might die the same hard-hearted, wicked Jeffreys that had lived. His spirit, as mean in adversity, as insolent and inhuman in prosperity, sank down under the load of public abhorrence. His constitution, originally bad and much impaired by intemperance, was completely broken by distress and anxiety. He was tormented by a cruel internal disease, which the most skilful surgeons of that age were seldom able to relieve. One solace was left to him—brandy. Even when he had causes to try and counsels to attend, he had seldom gone to bed sober. Now, when he had nothing to occupy his mind save terrible recollections and terrible forebodings, he abandoned himself without reserve to his favorite vice. Many believed him to be bent on shortening his life by excess. He thought it better, they said, to go off in a drunken fit than to be hacked by catch, or torn limb from limb by the populace. Once he was roused from a state of abject despondency by an agreeable sensation, speedily followed by a mortifying disappointment. A parcel had been left for him at the tower. It appeared to be a barrel of Colchester oysters, his favorite dainties, He was greatly moved, for there are moments when those who least deserve affection are pleased to think that they inspire it. Thank God, he exclaimed, I have still some friends left. He opened the barrel, and from among a heap of shells out tumbled a stout halter. It does not appear that one of the flatterers or buffoons whom he had enriched out of the plunder of his victims came to comfort him in the day of his trouble. But he was not left in utter solitude. John Touchen, whom he had sentenced to be flogged every fortnight for seven years, made his way into the tower, and presented himself before the fallen oppressor. Poor Jeffreys, humbled to the dust, behaved with abject civility, and called for wine. "'I'm glad, sir,' he said, to see you. "'And I am glad,' answered the resentful Whig, "'to see your lordship in this place.' "'I served my master,' said Jeffreys. "'I was bound in conscience to do so.' "'Where was your conscience?' asked tuchin "'when you passed that sentence on me at Dorchester.' It was set down in my instructions, answered Jeffreys fawningly, that I was to show no mercy to men like you, men of parts and courage. When I went back to court I was reprimanded for my lenity. Even Touchen, acrimonious as was his nature, and great as were his writings, seemed to have been a little mollified by the pitiable spectacle which he had at first contemplated with vindictive pleasure. He always denied the truth of the report that he was the person who sent the Colchester barrel to the tower." A more benevolent man, John Sharp, the excellent dean of Norwich, forced himself to visit the prisoner. It was a painful task, but Sharp had been treated by Jeffreys in old times as kindly as it was in the nature of Jeffreys to treat anybody, and had once or twice been able, by patiently waiting till the storm of curses and invectives had spent itself, and by dexterously seizing the moment of good humor, to obtain for unhappy families some mitigation of their sufferings. The prisoner was surprised and pleased, "'What?' he said. "'Dare you own me now?' It was in vain, however, that the amiable divine tried to give salutary pain to that seared conscience. Jeffreys, instead of acknowledging his guilt, exclaimed vehemently against the injustice of mankind, "'People call me a murderer for doing what at the time was applauded by some who are now high in public favor. They call me a drunkard because I take punch to relieve me in my agony.' He would not admit that, as president of the High Commission, he had done anything that deserved reproach. His colleagues, he said, were the real criminals, and now they all threw the blame on him. He spoke with peculiar asperity of Spratt, who had undoubtedly been the most humane and moderate member of the board. It soon became clear that the wicked judge was fast sinking under the weight of bodily and mental suffering. Dr. John Scott, prebendary of St. Paul's, a clergyman of great sanctity and author of The Christian Life, A treatise once widely renowned was summoned, probably on the recommendation of his intimate friend Sharp, to the bedside of the dying man. It was in vain, however, that Scott spoke, as Sharp had already spoken, of the hideous butcheries of Dorchester and Taunton. To the last, Jeffreys continued to repeat that those who thought him cruel did not know what his orders were, that he deserved praise instead of blame, and that his clemency had drawn on him the extreme displeasure of his master." Disease, assisted by strong drink and misery, did its work fast. The patient's stomach rejected all nourishment. He dwindled in a few weeks from a portly and even corpulent man to a skeleton. On the 18th of April he died, in the 41st year of his age. He had been Chief Justice of the King's Bench at 35, and Lord Chancellor at 37. In the whole history of the English bar there is no other instance of so rapid an elevation, or of so terrible a fall the emaciated corpse was laid, with all privacy, next to the corpse of Monmouth in the chapel of the tower. The fall of this man, once so great and so much dreaded, the horror with which he was regarded by all the respectable members of his own party, the manner in which the least respectable members of that party renounced fellowship with him in his distress, and threw on him the whole blame of crimes which they had encouraged him to commit, ought to have been a lesson to those intemperate friends of liberty who were clamouring for a new proscription but it was a lesson which too many of them disregarded. The king had, at the very commencement of his reign, displeased them by appointing a few tories and trimmers to high offices, and the discontent excited by these appointments had been inflamed by his attempt to obtain a general amnesty for the vanquished. He was in truth not a man to be popular with the vindictive zealots of any faction, for among his peculiarities was a certain ungracious humanity which rarely conciliated his foes, which often provoked his adherents, but in which he doggedly persisted without troubling himself either about the thanklessness of those whom he had saved from destruction or about the rage of those whom he had disappointed of their revenge some of the whigs now spoke of him as bitterly as they had ever spoken of either of his uncles he was a stuart after all and was not a stuart for nothing like the rest of the race he loved arbitrary power in holland he had succeeded in making himself under the forms of a republican polity scarcely less absolute than the old hereditary counts had been. In consequence of a strange combination of circumstances, his interest had, during a short time, coincided with the interest of the English people. But though he had been a deliverer by accident, he was a despot by nature. He had no sympathy with the just resentments of the Whigs. He had objects in view which the Whigs would not willingly suffer any sovereign to attain. He knew that the Tories were the only tools for his purpose. He had, therefore, from the moment at which he took his seat on the throne, favoured them unduly. He was now trying to procure an indemnity for those very delinquents whom he had, a few months before, described in his declaration as deserving of exemplary punishment. In November he had told the world that the crimes in which these men had borne a part had made it the duty of subjects to violate their oath of allegiance, of soldiers to desert their standards, of children to make war on their parents with what constancy, then, could he recommend that such crimes could be covered by a general oblivion? And was there not too much reason to fear that he wished to save the agents of tyranny from the fate which they merited, in the hope that, at some future time, they might serve him as unscrupulously as they had served his father-in-law? End of section 3